This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest wi-fi access for customers bt's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy whatever your business bt's got your back search bt's got your back hello this is the red box podcast i'm matt jolly now when do the pollsters get it wrong how badly do they get it wrong can we trust polling today as a result a cracking chat coming up with mark pack he's the president of the lib dems but don't hold that against him he's also a polling i think nerd is probably the right word Uh, and he's written a brand new book called polling unpacked and he's going to take us through when pollsters have got things wrong and how they are getting things better so that's coming up on the podcast in just a moment but first as ever we kick off with our columnist panel and on a thursday it's night at the marriott it's india night and james marriott James, let's talk about your column first of all. Uh, you, it's basically, what is it, a thousand words, your column today? Yes. It's yeah. a thousand words of you just explaining why you, you haven't come into the studio today. <laughs> uh, that, that, was, that was exactly it. I was, I was planning well in advance. I was getting my excuses in early. So, I know how harshly you were judged on the, on the match, Wally Show. So where are you now? Um, judging by your column, you're either lying on the floor at the end of your bed or walking along the Regent's Canal. <laughs> I'm, I'm actually standing on my bed. Are you? Um, yeah. <laughs> um, find it a useful place to talk. So, um, explain why you're standing on your bed. At least, give us give us the outline of your column today. <laughs> well, I was just thinking. One of the kind of weird things about a weekly column is that you have to have um, at least one thought per week, uh, which is very, which actually is, I think, a, a kind of annoyingly high number of thoughts to have to summon. So you kind of become obsessed with how to think. And I don't know. I think sort of the last sort of six months of doing this column has been me increasingly wondering. How on, earth, how on earth do I make thoughts occur to me? Where can I find thoughts? What can I do to have thoughts? And basically concluding that a lot of, um, a lot of modern life and modern working practices seem like they could have almost been specifically designed to stop you having thoughts. Uh, so I've been sort of trying to work out how I can avoid that and um, where I can go to think, basically. And so that's why you, you're, the place for you to think is on the floor uh, between eight o'clock and midnight. Yes, I've, I've always discovered that. Ever since I was a child, I've loved to lie on the floor um, and think. I don't know why thoughts come there. Um, I don't think it's that eccentric. I think it's a perfectly... It's very, very close to... It's very, very... It's only you know, slightly further, slightly lower than a bed or a chair. I don't think it's eccentric. I just think it's... it's you try it. India, India, all... where are you speaking to us from right now? I am speaking to you as ever from my kitchen table. And it's I'm, a, a much I'm more sitting logical. on a chair at the kitchen table. Well, you know, while you're speaking, I'll lie on the floor and I'll see if... <laughs> <laughs> Go on, India. You, 
go take it away. What do you think about James's theory on 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 thinking? Well, I think it is it is strange being a columnist because you you do have to come up with one halfway decent idea by the the day before your column appears, and I find. I mean, I get my thoughts either sitting in this very chair at this very kitchen table or in shops talking to people, <laughs> talking to people in shops. I find it really useful. I find people in shops are like sort of mini ready-made focus groups if they're chatty. Um, and so if you start sort of talking to people in the queue at the co-op, you get quite a good impression of what people are thinking about and what's on their minds. And often that can be quite inspiring. Um, but I very much admire James's dedication to the process because I remain kind of upright and out and about by and large when I'm trying to have a thought. I, I admire the dedication, you know, the, the supineness and the and the peace and the quiet and the, the way, which is probably why his thoughts are rather superior to mine. Um, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, it's a good it's a good um, it's a good technique. I could I could definitely get on board with this doing the show on the floor. I'm aware does it sound? <laughs> yeah, but you uh, sound quite distant, yeah, Matt. You sound sound like, oh, fine, fine, <laughs> fine. I'll get back up. I'll get back up again. I think the quality um, perceptibly improved during during that last minute on the floor. (laughs) (laughs) Um, James, why are you standing on the bed? um, I sort of... (laughs) I was sort of... I was sort of bouncing myself into a kind of conversational Uh, rhythm. Um, I don't know. Do you you ever do that? I don't know. Um, No, because if I stand on the bed, I'd want to bounce, and then the quality of the sound would be impaired. Yes, I was sort of just gently sort of rocking myself, I suppose. But your point, James, Um, which I thought was interesting, was uh, now like half of the population go to university. We're training up, you know, people who think big thoughts about things, and then we enter the world of work and put them in rows of desks with lots of clattering Mm. noise and emails and everything else, um, which is the least conducive way to, to thinking. And I thought what was really interesting was your... The, the, the thing you'd also picked out is that technology has meant that people who were big thinkers, maybe they were managers or, you know, they were the creatives or whatever. Technology now means that instead of having someone else to, you know, having a secretary who does your expenses, you have to do your own on your phone. Or, you know, you have to make your own presentation. So actually, the, 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 the higher up you go in an organisation, you don't even get any more time to think and come up with smart, creative ideas because you're sort of doing all the admin of, of office life. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's been a real change. I think there was a time when if you're working in an office, you could be, I mean, I don't think it's good to be left totally alone, but if you needed long periods of like being by yourself to just properly think things through, you could just go to your office and do that. But now, you know, these kind of extra tasks that would once have been done by support staff, kind of, um, they just intrude everywhere. My, my other big thing that I'm really big on is I think, I think if you want to think properly, you, you, do, you do have to move. I think, you know, walking up and down, I was going through all these sort of, you know, various philosophers and scientists in history, and they've all, almost all of them have gone walking. Um, Einstein used to like sailing, although apparently he, apparently he often crashed, uh, which, um, which isn't very conducive <laughs> to, to thinking. Um, <laughs> but presumably up until the moment he was crashing, he was doing fantastic things in relativity. Um, but yeah, I think, yeah, a bit of time by yourself, move around, being stuck in a noisy office, I think is no good. And actually, I was really, I've read loads of really good stuff about open plan offices. And open plan offices basically seem to have no advantages. And it's been, it's been shown that employees working in open plan offices not only distracted by each other more, but they actually talk to each other less because nobody knows how to interrupt because everyone kind of could be working. Um, whereas if you're in your own separate office, people go and interrupt each other and knocking each other's doors more, apparently. That's interesting. That's interesting. Is this all just um, uh, India? Is this just proof of how actually the working from home culture 
it might be good if it's stuck a bit, maybe not full time. Yeah, yeah but, but... I think so. Absolutely. I think people need to be able to be a bit free range <clears throat> in order to be creative. I was just um, remembering many, 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 many years ago, I was a feature writer at the Mail on Sunday and we had a features editor who, if any of us were looking uninspired, would either give us 50 quid, I mean, for a group of people, to go to the pub and have some and come back with ideas. Or, um, or if you were sort of staring into space blankly, he'd say, oh, you need to go for a walk, go for a walk. And so you'd go for a walk down Kensington High Street and you would, you know, both from the pub and from the walk, you would come back with a fairly decent bunch of ideas, which I don't think would have been generated just sitting at your desk. Well, that's all. But that in, was in the old days. That was in the good old days. Um, yeah. And actually, if you see, I mean, it, what, what was interesting yesterday, we were speaking to um, Abigail from the uh, from Cambridgeshire Live. And as a result of the pandemic, you know, Reach, the local newspaper group, have got rid of basically almost all their offices. And you say, well, that's terrible. But actually what it has meant is journalists have just go out and about just to get out of the house. They go out and about more. They chat to people. They knock on doors. They see they yeah, literally yeah, see what's stories. going on. And they yeah. pick up some more stories as a result. I mean, they're probably going to pick up more stories there than James bouncing on his bed. But then he hasn't got to, he hasn't got to do any work now for another week. <laughs> no, so he it's could the quality like... of thoughts. It's the quality of thoughts that he gets from bouncing on the bed. I'm all for it. Maybe that's what we should... Can we get a bed in here? Get rid of... Um, <laughs> we'll get rid of Mariella's sex chair and we'll get a little trampoline. Um, <laughs> uh, let, let's move on because I think that's quite enough of everyone picturing James in his what Thomas the Tank pajamas still. <laughs> um, let's talk about uh, calories on menus. Uh, from today, restaurants, cafes, and takeaways with more than two hundred fifty staff must print how many calories are in meals on their web- menus, websites, and delivery platforms, just to try and take the fun out of life even more, India. Yeah, exactly. Just to make everything a kind of guilt-tripping, miserable, anxiety-inducing experience. I think it's a really sort of silly and pointless thing. Also, I don't really believe in calories. I mean, I know a calorie is a calorie, but actually a calorie isn't a calorie because obviously the calorie you get from a can of Coke is not the same nutritionally uh, as the calorie you get from spinach. Uh, So, you know, it's possible, for example, to be on a diet and eat very, very few calories and lose weight. But the stuff that you're putting into your body is terrible for it Um, and, you know, plays havoc with your insulin levels and makes you have sugar highs and sugar lows and that kind of very typical crash at four in the afternoon when you think if I don't have a Mars bar. I'm going to pass out. Um, so I think so. I think they're silly. I think they're silly from that point of view. But also, I mean, your point is is the is the main one. You know, how is it fun to go to a restaurant, look at the menu, go, I really fancy that, and then oh, but it's five million calories, and it's you know, it's therefore likely to make me fat. It's just, it's just joy sapping. It takes all the fun out of everything, out of eating, certainly. What about you, James? I mean, no, fa- famously, I, I, I we know you it. like to eat pasta in the bath, but if you were going to eat out, um... <laughs> I know. Well, it's just, it's just well, it's, I, I know. I, I mean, I understand. I understand why we think it's joyless, and I especially understand why people think, you know, it's bad for people with eating disorders, um, and that's really not helpful. I personally, from a personal point of view, um, I'm looking forward to it. I, um, <laughs> I, I really want to eat more healthily, and I kind of, I've been kind of shocking myself into it this morning, looking at all these like Pizza Hut pizzas that literally have like more than a grown man's like daily daily calorific allowance and like one but then, pizza. did you not know that before yeah what did you think well, what did you think when you, you went have... to pizza hut and you got one of those when you order the pizza it's got that sort of sheen of oil across the top of it what did you, you kind th- of know it you kind of know it but you also kind of don't know it but it's kind of i don't know it's just kind of 
now you really can't avoid it. And then, I mean, I have seen some silly stuff. I saw people posting on Twitter their their officers posting um, how many calories were in like a cup of tea. So like English breakfast tea, 0.84 calories. Um, <laughs> so I think it's going to be more English the, breakfast teas and less pizzas for me. But now you know that uh, the, the shock news uh, that Pizza Hut pizzas might be high in calories does that mean you're going to go to Pizza Hut and just have the salad wagon? Or will you just feel guilty as you munch your way through a Hawaiian? Uh, I mean, it doesn't make it... Giving you this information... Is, this, is having this information going to make you change your your eating behaviour? That's the point. Because there's no point otherwise just making you depressed while you eat the same food. I think, I think I'm going to do better. I, my other horrifying discovery recently was that I've become um, obsessed with a salad from Pret-a-Manger that had... It looked really healthy. And then it turned out to be like, it had like more calories in it when I Googled it um, than like a Big Mac or something. I mean, it was just preposterous. And I was like, well, you can never tell, you know, you don't know where they're lurking. And it's just, I don't know. I think, I think it's going to be good for me. Not Maybe not for everyone else, but I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Very good. Very good. Right, then finally, let's talk about um, uh, pop culture. Uh, there's, there's a new British pop archive is being, uh, is being developed. Uh, uh, um, what do you make of this, India? I uh, really like the look of this. It's in Manchester and it's being um, curated by um, the 1980s music journalist John Savage. <gasps> I think it's John Savage. I yes, it is. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, uh, I, and, and it celebrates um, the, the significant and long-lasting achievements of pop culture. I think... I mean, I don't know because I'm too old now, but I feel very lucky to have been a teenager and young person um, in the 80s and early 90s, well, late 70s to late 80s, actually, where it just, you know, British pop culture was just the coolest thing in the entire world. And I know there were reboots of the coolness, but I feel that particular period was really kind of had been unequaled since the 1960s. Um, and the, the idea of taking it seriously and of catalog, cataloguing it and remembering it and honouring it is seems a very cheerful thing to me. I'm very glad they're doing it. And I like the juxtaposition, the high-low juxtaposition, you know, of this being in the same museum as the first folio of some Shakespeare something. Yeah, I have, yeah having like Coronation Street and uh, yeah. Prime Suspect alongside... You know, and uh, a pair of hacienda trainers and something yeah, from I mean, Shakespeare. These are things, but these they are matter. Things that, they matter know, to people. They really have matter shaped to the country. People. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. They really, really matter to people. They're part of the fabric of who everybody is in one way or another. And I, I don't like the idea of thinking that, that you know, these things are ephemeral, ephemeral or disposable. They're really, really kind of hefty and significant. So it's good to see them being given their heft, their space to be hefty in. India Knight and James Marriott then. Of course, you can read them both in The Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, it's Polling Unpacked. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN.
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast now. It's time for this. When it all goes wrong. Probably, probably the liveliest piece of news that's ever, that's ever been used to introduce the uh, the president of the Liberal Democrats <laughs> uh, for a uh, in-depth discussion about the merits of uh, political polling. But Mark Pack is here. Hello, Mark. Lovely to join you, Matt. It's nice to have you here. Uh, and we're talking about polling. You've got a new book, Polling Unpacked, tracing the origins of polling and asking how reliable polls really are. So in a moment, you're going to walk... I'm looking forward to this. You're going to walk us through five mm. polling disasters over the years. Yeah and what we can learn from them. But let's go, first of all, right mm. back to the beginning. Because now we're polling is such mm. a built-in part of mm. what happens in politics. How did it begin? I genuinely don't know the answer. Most likely started in the early 19th century when there was a particularly lively US presidential election, 1826. And naturally, just like we all these days, people wanted to know, well, who might be winning? Who might be ahead? Who might be more popular? And so the habit of straw polls started off of, say, at a military muster meeting, asking all everyone who turned up to serve in the militia, who are you going to vote for in the presidential election? And so from those sort of slightly amateurish early days through to the latest scientific methods, the sort of methodology has got more and more sophisticated, but the basic purpose and the basic idea is still the same. Get a typical group of people together, ask them who they support, and then... Uh, hopefully, you get the right answer. And let's let's get in the weeds mm. quickly because that's what we're here for. Because when you say typical group of people, how do you make sure you do that? And let's talk waiting. Yeah, so it's really hard to get a properly representative group of people to take part in a poll because not everyone is happy to take part in polls. Not everyone trusts pollsters. Some people are really busy. So what pollsters do is they try quite hard to get a typical group. They know they fail to get a typical group and then they wait their answers to try and make that group more typical. So maybe you've done a poll and you don't have enough teenagers. Teenage men are particularly hard to get hold of to do polls with so you take the teenage men that you do have in the poll and you give their answers more weight to try and make the answers representative overall and most of the time that works really well but occasionally you can get caught out when there's a factor that suddenly becomes important in politics and you didn't realize oh we need to make our sample representative of that group of people which i suspect will be some of the things that are coming up in just a moment and um what's the right number of people for a poll It matters a lot less than most people think. But basically, if you want to know what the national level of support is, say, for parties in the UK or indeed in any country, a thousand upwards is fine. If you're looking at, say, an individual constituency, 500 upwards is fine. But almost always when the polls go wrong, it's not because they didn't ask enough people. It's because they asked the wrong people or did the wrong things with the answers or people misunderstood the answers. So generally, sample size gets people excited, but it doesn't doesn't matter that much. And without swearing on the radio, um, what do you think of Twitter polls? (laughs) (laughs) 
is the correct answer. Right, here we go. Then. So we're going to count down five big mm. polling disasters in history. We're going to start with the 1936 presidential election. We are fighting, fighting to save a great and precious form of government for ourselves and for the world. And so I accept the commission you have tendered me. I join with you. That was, well, it sounded like a gun going off at the end. That was Franklin D. Roosevelt uh, giving a speech ahead of the 1936 US election. He went on to win a massive landslide, uh, the biggest landslide since the 1850s, but the polling was wrong. Yeah, that's right. So the Literary Digest was the premier pollster of the time, and they did what to us to now seems a really crude thing of basically getting their readers to tell them who they were going to vote for. <laughs> But it had worked for several... bit Daily Express website, that, isn't it? But it had worked for several presidential elections in a row, and they made a real virtue of how they had millions of people responding to their poll, their survey. They'd got it right several times in a row. But in 36, they predicted a Republican landslide. As you say, it was actually a Democrat landslide. And three, what we would now call modern scientific pollsters, had their debut in, in the 36 election, and they all got it right. George Gallup was the best self-publicist so he's the one that people have normally heard of but Roper and Crosley also debuted their polls at that election also got it right ironically Gallup's polls weren't actually that accurate he got uh, Roosevelt the uh, the Democrat support wrong by seven percentage points which most of the time you'd say is a bit of a polling disaster but what he predicted was a landslide Roosevelt actually got even more of a landslide and so, of course, nobody really minded about that, that error. It was the fact that they'd got the winner right and the Literary Digest and got it wrong. And that's such an important thing, is that when people say, oh, the pollsters mm. got it wrong, actually, if they get it wrong but call, call the outcome right, nobody remembers. Exactly. So the polls, you know, in, in, I'm sure we'll come on to mm. it, but, you know, in general elections and referendums that happened since, you know, the, the um, uh, margin of error... Mm. Could, it could only be two or three mm. points, and it's very close. They mm. could be very, very yeah. close. But if they were two points the other way, absolutely, they'd yeah. have called it right. Yeah. And 1997 was a great example of that, that people don't think of 97 as being a bad election for the polls in the UK, but they predicted a big Labour win. Labour did get a big win, but it was actually quite a lot different from what a lot of the polls uh, were saying. So had that been a close election, it would have been, oh, the polls were awful, because you know, it was, an even, you know, it was a, not quite as big a landslide as the polls were saying, still a landslide. In a sense, who cares? Yeah. Um, and it, you're, interestingly, this, uh, in 1936, we were talking about, you know, how many people do you need? They ha- so they sent out 10 million questionnaires to their readers yeah. and 2.27 million replied. Exactly. You can see why if you don't know how polling works, that sounds, look, you've talked to, you've got answers from nearly 3 million people. Of course your answer's going to be right. You can, so it was a real shock. Um, and I think probably privately a huge amount of relief, maybe not a shock to George Gallup, but a huge amount of relief to him and the other pollsters that their newer methodology talking to a tiny fraction of that, that number of people got it right. But what Literary Digest could have done is mm. taken that two mm. point uh, two seven million people, asked them when they were doing their questionnaire, how old are mm. you, where do you live, what do you do, what's your income... And then done a bit of waiting. I mean, waiting all two million would have probably taken quite a long time in those days. <laughs> yeah, no computers to but, do it. But if, if they were basically coming back and they're all 65-year-old men who live in mm. Texas, then they, they, should have they known, might yeah. have thought, oh, hang on, this might not be representative of teenagers in California. Yeah, they had two problems. One was their sampling was basically too Republican, but that was only about a third of the problem. The other two-thirds 
was a differential response rate so that people who were more likely to vote Democrat were less likely to respond to their survey. And that's the sort of non-differential response rate problem that's really hard to deal with with waiting because you might have the right number of men, the right number of Texans, the right number of pensioners. But if you've got Republicans keener to respond than Democrats... You, you may well still not get your waiting right. And so in the same way that I, I joked about the Daily Express, mm. but over the Express, I mean, the Times web, mm. website runs polls. All that tells you is what did Times readers at yeah. that moment think? Yeah, and that can be interesting. It's interesting. You know, it's, exactly, it's, you know, if, if Times readers were to overwhelmingly say that, for example, they think Britain should have nothing whatsoever to do with helping the Ukrainian government, that wouldn't be a scientific poll, but that would be quite a surprising result. It, and yeah. that would be worth checking, well, did the Russian bots get at the poll or... Yeah. It would tell you something. It just wouldn't tell you what yeah. the country was thinking. Right, let's fast forward a bit now. We are coming back to the UK, 1970. Ted Heath for the Conservatives, Harold Wilson for Labour, and Heath was not expected to win. I think that this is very important, and everybody here would certainly agree, that we've been passing through a period of disillusionment with government. And this is particularly true of the young. The reason for it, of course, is that so many promises were given uh, by the Labour Party and then broken. As Ted Heath there whipping the mm. nation into a frenzy. <laughs> um, Mark Pack, uh, this was sort of the UK's first mm. big polling disaster. Yeah, the polls in Britain had started in 1945 and they'd, unlike pundits, had got the 45 election right. So they'd had a good run. They seemed to be a good source of information. But ahead of the 1970 election, over all the picture was suggesting Labour would get, Harold Wilson would get re-elected. Turned out to be a Tory victory. And so it was the Waterloo of the polls, as David Butler christened it. It was a bit of a disaster. Um, and it was a particular disaster because it was the first election at which newspapers who commissioned polls had relaxed the copyright on the polls. So newspapers were able to report each other's polls as well. And, for example, a third of the Times front pages during the election featured polls. So polls were the really big thing in that election. And then they got it horribly wrong. And it's... It's hard to give a simple answer. In fact, if you read my book, you'll probably b- have even less of an idea as to why the polls got it wrong in 70. <laughs> so because, it ringing endorsement. Well, because one of the common theories I sort of have a go at demolishing, that it wasn't just a matter of there was a late swing, that, you know, if you look at the yeah, exact yeah. dates when polls were done, that, that story doesn't stand up. But I think what 1970 illustrates is that when the polls go wrong, it's often a lot of different small factors, which most of the time you get one thing a bit wrong one way and it counterbalanced by something being a bit wrong the other way. In 1970, really unluckily for the pollsters and the public, those areas all ended up lining up in one direction. So they all pushed the polls way off. And it's a bit like, you know, if you go to your doctor for a a really thorough health checkup, you know, the doctor will inspect you and find all sorts of things that might be a bit wrong, that might cause a problem. And you never can be quite sure which is the exact precise one that's causing the ailment. But, you know, it's a good idea to try and deal with all of the problems. And so the the reaction of the polling industry to that 70 disaster was to make quite a few changes to try and improve their methodology. And they did have then a, a good run in subsequent elections. But it is still a bit of a mystery. And I think the key lesson, therefore is it's very rarely the case there's just one simple explanation that's that's the be all and end all and so be suspicious of pundits touting just one polling story and i suppose actually you're 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 trying to 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 um use science mm. on human beings mm. and herding them into you know quite often you know i remember looking into the details of polls before mm. where you know lib dems who voted leave mm. ukippers who voted you know these are human beings some of them are a bit 
hard to predict. They don't all do the thing that you always expect. So it, it, it's it's a oh it, yeah, they, they say there's a huge amount of wonderful variation. I mean, as you say, the UKIP Lib Dem swing voters are a real group of people that yeah, exist. Yeah. But I think to anyone interested in politics, it's completely baffling that yeah. there can be a UKIP Lib Dem swing voter because actually they're probably people who aren't that interested in politics. Mm. Um, but yeah, I mean to go from so the polls back then predicting uh, Labour up to twelve points mm. at, uh, ahead of the Tories, and then the Tories won. Uh, with a lead of three and a half percent, the Times journalist George Clark wrote the election would be remembered as the occasion when the people of the United Kingdom hurled the findings of the opinion polls back in the faces of the pollsters. Something that I think we might discuss. Uh, some of the things <laughs> happening uh, coming up. Right, we move on now. This is the third polling disaster with Mark Pack. We reach 1992. Neil Kinnock was expected to win comfortably against John Major. I think people in this country want to be convinced. They want to know what someone stands for, what their policies are, what they would mean, and how they would carry them out. Another great Tory leader there, whipping, whipping us up into, uh, into a frenzy. Uh, once again, Neil mm. Kinnock was on course to win mm. uh, in 1992. Was it the pollsters? Did the campaign make a difference? What went wrong this time? Yeah, I mean, this was really dramatic, because it looked like it would be a bit close, but that Labour probably would, would win, and so people were... You know, sort of on the edge of their seats, and then the exit poll pointed towards, yeah, probably a Labour victory. And then the first few results started coming in, and then, oh, crikey, maybe it's not going to be a Labour victory. And then the famous victory for the sadly now late David Amos in Basildon, and his huge grinning face on being announced, having successfully held the seat for the Tories, was really the the, you know, the visual image of the polls getting it wrong. They polls had said he should lose, and there was he hugely grinning and happy, having having won. And it was really probably a mix of three things. One was there was some late swing late swing away from Labour in the election. There was some faulty sampling, partly because 92 was... Polster still had to work with the 1981 census because the 1991 census data wasn't yet available so they're waiting how many you know what proportion of different groups and population should you wait to they didn't have up-to-date information they got some of that wrong and then also there was and this is a bit more controversial but it certainly seems that for some pollsters there was a problem with what was called the shy tory effect that some tories were just less keen on taking part in polls a bit more embarrassed about maybe admitting they were tory because it was a rather unfashionable thing to be Tory in, in 1992, at least until the election result came in. So again, mix of different, mix of different things. Um, and all of them meant that afterwards, a lot of people felt, well, just the polls have given us the wrong story about the election. But in fairness to the pollsters, there are a lot of elections between 1970 and 92 when they had got it right. Mark, we reached 2016. Mm. Not a good year for pollsters. No. Well, let's, as we're doing it in chronological order... Uh, let's uh, start with one of the big early disasters for polling in 2016. This is, should be a British passport. It says European Union on it. All right? I think, to make this country safer, we need to get back British passports. Oh, such a big issue, that. Um, uh, of course, the Brexit mm. referendum in 2016, of the 168 polls carried out ahead, carried out ahead of the EU referendum, only a third predicted a leave vote. What went wrong? Yeah, I mean, the polls weren't that badly off this time around. If you look at their final figures, they had remain on 52%, leave on 48%, and it was the other way around. So a couple of, po- you know, four points out each way, which is not a massive error. It's the sort of error you should expect on average one time in six. But, you know, we all, and I include myself in that, I think 
looked at the polls and, and most people took a much heavier chance of a Remain victory than in hindsight we should have. And what seems to have been a problem there was particularly that there are people less interested in politics, less likely to vote usually in elections, less likely to respond to polls. Actually, there's a, a good chunk of them were quite energised by the referendum campaign and decided to come out and vote. And therefore, that was enough to tip polls from being fairly close to just being that bit sufficiently off that they'd got the, the winner wrong in, in what was a close race. But one of the lessons I think to take from it is, you know, if you've got looking at something like 52, 48 percentage figures, you should, that's a one in six chance it's going to be the other way around. That might sound quite low, but if you had a revolver, six empty, five empty chambers, one bullet in it, you'd be thinking, one in six could happen. One in six could happen. And actually, tra- trajectory is important mm. as well. Mm. That actually, during the course of the campaign, uh, Remain sort of started that year ahead mm. and it got narrow and narrow and narrow as we got closer so you sort of think well if the if the vote had been a couple of weeks later the pollsters would have probably you know if the directory continued mm. they might have picked it up yeah and in fact i mean you mentioned the polls overall but if you look just at the ones in june they were almost exactly 50 50 split it was 14 had remain in the lead 16 had leave in the lead one had it tied and one had two different methodologies and you could pick either remain or leave in the lead. So, you know, it was almost exactly split the polls in the last couple of weeks. Do you think, given that uh, the majority of politicians in Westminster were reporting remain, uh, supporting remain, uh, in terms of sort of the, what we'd probably call the out-of-touch metropolitan elite chattering classes uh, who sit in glass buildings like this in London, remain was the overwhelming uh, feature. Uh, was there sort of optimism bias or just wanting to believe the polls that showed Remain were going to win, therefore disbelieving the others. I think there was definitely a bit of wanting one particular result and therefore people focusing on things like how often in referendums you see a swing towards the status quo at the last moment. So there was a lot of talk about the academic research that shows that and very little talk about the one in six chance that you should expect based on those figures, the result will go the other way. And I think that reflects when people want a particular outcome, you tend to look for things that make that outcome more likely rather than tend to look for things that make it less likely. And so, as you as you say, because the media and Westminster bubble overall was so heavily remain, that almost certainly did skew things. And given, because there were so many, many polls, over 168, um, what impact then does polling have on the campaign? Because clearly mm. campaigning could, could shift the polls, but then polls, if it looks like the polls are narrowing that can then have an impact on people thinking, well, what I thought was a thing which was never going to happen, actually maybe it might happen, and so that might then influence how you're going to vote. I mean, in that sense, I guess the the pollsters have a fairly good alibi with the Brexit referendum because the story they told was that, oh, it's looking close, but Remain will probably win. But but there was clearly it was looking close-ish. And that almost certainly helped produce the very high turnout in the referendum. So in that sense, the pollsters may have got the, made the outcome a surprise for us, but at least they mobilised people knowing correctly that it's going to be a close thing. I think much more problematic is things like um, the 2015 election, where the polls pointed towards a hung parliament and then it wasn't a hung parliament. And then in hindsight, you say, well, maybe that election would have been reported a bit differently if we'd had more accurate polls in it. But at least in the referendum, the basic story of it's close was true. Because actually the, the debate around 2015 mm. was, uh, you know, Ed Miliband's going to win or it's going to be mm. a hung parliament. There was very little scrutiny of what does a Conservative exactly. majority government look like, including the promise of an EU referendum. Yeah, indeed. Uh, and indeed uh, the, the, the demise of the Lib Dems from the coalition. Uh, let's move on then to, the, uh, to our final polling disaster. This is another one from 2016. And I don't know, the polls now, a poll just came out where essentially we're even... And I'm feeling it. You know, when I went to New Hampshire, I wasn't supposed to win, right? Yes, Donald Trump 
winning the 2016 mm. US presidential election. Was it a polling disaster? Sort of. But in fairness to the pollsters, the national polls in the US in 2016 pretty much got it right. You look at the average just before polling day in the US, uh, the real clear politics average had it as Clinton 47, Trump 44. The actual result was Clinton 48, Trump 46. Pretty much dead on. But two big mistakes. One was lots of people assumed that if you're ahead in the vote, you'll therefore win the Electoral College. And actually, that isn't what happened. Easy mistake to make, because although everyone sort of technically knew that wasn't the case, the previous time it happened in 2000, which was this really weird election with Florida and the hanging chads and all of that. And the last time before that had been 1888. So there was just this assumption, oh, if Clinton's ahead in the poll, surely she's going to win. So that was mistake number one. Mistake number two was there were some state polls that were really badly off, particularly in a trio of northern US states that Trump won by unbelievably small margins. Had he not won them, he would have lost... The polls had Clinton doing well in them, partly because of late swing, partly because of undersampling uh, people with lower levels of formal education. Those state polls were quite badly wrong. And therefore, you know, the national picture polls were right. But because the state polls being wrong, people had drawn the wrong conclusion, thinking Clinton was pretty much, you know, very, very likely to win. There were all sorts of projections giving her 98 percent you know, t- supposed certainty of winning, which you probably never should give that high a certainty on anything <laughs> in life. But... but so in a way, the polls, the national polls were right, some state polls were badly wrong, and the analysis all levered on top of it was, was quite, quite misleading. Again, the media class could not believe that Donald Trump would actually win, so that, that ends up influencing. Yeah, I mean, had, say, it been Mitt Romney as the Republican candidate and he'd been the shock winner, I think it would have been much less of a shock because the fact that it was yeah. Trump, such an exceptional, out-of-the-ordinary uh, candidate winning, that made it a real shock. And uh, we, we've talked about how after each shock, the pollsters changed what they do. Um, I mean, they were slightly better when it came to the 2019 mm. general election. You know, they, they predicted the Tories were going to win, mm. you know, comfortably, and they did. How much can we trust what the polls are telling us right now, then? I think quite a lot, not 100% for the reasons we've just been yeah. running through these five failures. But across, you know, we've been talking about elections across near on 100 years across two countries, there have been huge numbers of elections and referendums and other votes that we've not talked about, in all of which the polls were pretty good. We've just highlighted the high-profile failures. And so, overall, pollsters are much better than political pundits at getting it right. Um, Apologies to political pundits who are listening (laughs) in, but I'm afraid that, you know, you look at the research into the record of pundits, go for a pollster over a pundit any day. But, you know, don't, don't take it as absolute certainty. There will be you know, maybe it's one time in five, one time in six, where the polls will end up misleading you. But better to be well informed the rest of the time from them. So pay attention to them, but don't stake your life on them. <laughs> and just because, wait, now you're such an expert in polling. You've written a whole book about mm. polling. Why are the Liberal Democrats, of which you're president, of <laughs> not doing better in the polls? You should be able to game them. You should know how to do this. Yeah. Well, if if you um if you read some of the footnotes carefully, you'll you'll see me recanting some of my belief on a previous internal polling <laughs> that the Lib Dems have done. And but I think fundamentally, you know, the big challenge for smaller parties, including the Lib Dems, is one of grabbing public attention. And so there is often quite a gap between the potential of what a party can do and what it can then pull off when there's an actual election on and you see, as like we saw in the by-elections last year and so on, versus what people are thinking when they're asked by a pollster when they're not really thinking about politics. They don't really think much about politics at all, let alone thinking about the Lib Dems. But give them a few weeks of Lib Dem leaflets coming through their letterbox every other day. As we saw in North Shropshire, you can get a very, very different outcome. 
So would you would you expect a, a massive change in the Lib Dems prospects ahead of the next general election? I think you look at a lot of those blue wall parliamentary constituencies, there's really good prospects for there to be a very significant increase in the number of Lib Dem MPs in the next election. But a lot of that is going to be down to that local campaigning to buck the national picture, to make people, give people a, a reason to think about the Lib Dems in their seat in a way that it's, you know, obviously Times Radio is wonderfully generous in its coverage to the Lib Dems, but it's always a bit of a struggle to get national media coverage for a smaller party. Uh, just like you've got a copy of your book. Mm. You, you mentioned that I'm in it. I've not seen, you, a, I've not seen a copy yeah, of your you, book. Yeah, you feature in a footnote. You feature in a footnote. In a good way or a bad way? Um, in a neutral <laughs> way. I, I, I just use the example of that when people cover polls, they often slip from talking about the past tense to the current tense. So a yeah. poll might tell you Labour's gone up four points. Yeah. But it's really common for journalists to then rewrite that as as the polls showing Labour is going up, as if that's something that's still happening. So you picked up something that and, I've... And I used one example from uh, from the Redbox early morning email of of, uh, of the past well, tense. it was five. Versus, uh, versus current tense. But yeah, but, I mean, it was written at 5am in the morning, yeah, probably, I mean, let, as let your, your let alibi. Me, let, me let me off, let me off. Mark, it's lovely to see you. It's <laughs> absolutely fascinating. Cause it's, yeah, it's, um, and it's a really good reminder that, you know, yes, we should listen to polls and, you know, follow them, but also, you know, a, a pinch of salt is always advisable. That's all we've got time for on today's episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcast from. And you can listen via the Times Radio app. Catch me Monday to Friday, 10 till 1, live on Times Radio. And if you want to come on and play the hugely popular quiz, can you get to number 10? Email me your details, matt.chorley at times.radio. And we'll get you on very soon. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.